Let me just say welcome, whether you're in this room or whether you are watching us online, we are so um, thankful just to be able to, to gather this morning in worship through song and then as we look at the Word of God as well, just so encouraging. So if you don't know who I am, my name is Aaron, I serve as the Executive Pastor at Salem Chapel and encouraged as we jump into a brand new series in the book of Judges um, this fall. So I encourage you, if you have your Bibles or your phones, make your way to Judges chapter 1. We're going to be in Judges 1 through the first five verses of Judges chapter 2, seeing some interesting things um, as we walk through this. But there, there is some themes, and, and we've, that's the reason we've titled um, this series, Broken People, Faithful God. So I hope this week that um, either through social media or through our, our weekly updates or things like that, that you've been able to receive um, the reading plan that we put out. So we put out a reading plan for this entire series. And the way that works is meant to be read uh, ahead of the week that we're going to preach that text. And so it's probably no surprise that there is just a lot of text. There's a lot of stories that um, we're going to see in this text. And we don't have time to even read all that we're going to cover. And so knowing that the Spirit of God works in and through God's people, even as they read in their own quiet time, if you'll do that um, as you come into this place, God will have already prepared your hearts for what he is going to do. So before we jump in this morning, let me just take a, a moment, let's pray for our time, and then we're going to see what God has for us this morning. Father, you are good to us. Even when we don't see it, we don't recognize it, God, even in those moments where it so often looks like um, absolute despair in our lives, Father, you, um, you are faithful to your people. And so God, we recognize that, we worship you for that. God, we ask that you would continue to, to not only stir our affections for you, but Lord, that you would remind us again and again and again as your people what's already true. God, open our ears this morning that we um, might hear what you'd have to say through your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So in Judges, there is one storyline. What is it? It's this. It's a group of people that God has rescued and he's redeemed and he's called and he's set apart to declare the glory of God to all of the nations. But what happens is they keep repeating kind of this cyclical pattern of sinful behavior that brings about repeated disaster in their lives over and over and over again. And yet, in spite of their continued failures, they are met by a faithful God who pursues them and loves them and disciplines them and restores them over and over again. So during this series, I'm going to put up a chart that we're going to use repeatedly because it really illustrates pretty vividly not only the book of Judges, but it helps to illustrate our own lives as well. You're going to see in Judges, when they sin, they cry out to God, he delivers them, and then it goes on, rinse and repeat. And you could probably relate to that because if you think about it, how many times do we find ourselves in the same patterns of disobedience and then discipline and then restoration? Even as God in that moment is demonstrating his unrelenting, his unchanging faithfulness. If you have ever asked yourself this question, like privately and alone, how do I end up in this same cycle of sin? Then I'm, I'm, I want to encourage you because our walk through this Old Testament book, it's going to challenge you for sure. Get done with today and you're going to be like, that, that challenges us. But here's what also I know. It's going to convict us, but it's going to comfort us. Comfort us as broken people who encounter fresh, at least that's my prayer, a faithful, faithful God. 
But before we can start to bring this opening um, chapter of Judges really to, to bear in our lives, we have to have a big picture understanding of what's happening as uh, the book opens and how it fits into the overall narrative of the Bible. Maybe you don't know this, but the Bible is one cohesive story of God redeeming his people back to himself. So from the moment of sin in Genesis chapter 3 until Jesus calls us home, there is the thread of redemption that runs all the way through that. You can't read any of the stories, and we're going to read some stories that you're like, wow, what, like, what in the world are we going to do with that, without seeing that there is a thread of redemption. That's the whole point. But before we can get that, I need to set some context for you this morning so that we can begin to understand a little bit what God has for us. So four things I want to give you. First of all, and we're going to do these real quick, Joshua. He was the leader of the Israelites, but he had just died. And God had commanded the people to possess the the land through conquest, but it wasn't done, even though Joshua was leading through that. And secondly, the Lord had required Israel to conquer the land and the people that inhabited it. Why? And that's a question that stirs in our souls sometimes. Well, we don't have a lot of time to talk about today, but understand this. Two things, God's judgment And so that the people of God would not immerse themselves in the culture. So we know this about the Canaanites. They were wicked in every sense of the word. They had no desire to repent, no desire to turn to the Lord. So God declares that Israel is going to go in and they're going to cleanse the land. Now that raises some questions for you and your soul. Good. It should Because we're going to unpack that as we go through this entire series, knowing that God's word, the full counsel of God, preached to God's people is always edifying and is always something that strengthens the body. Third, um, these judges, if we're trying to understand what that looked like. So they are the rulers over Israel between the time of Joshua. So if you remember your uh, Old Testament history a little bit, you have Moses who leads the people of Israel, then Joshua, and then eventually we get to the kings, right? So Saul and David and the, and the line of the kings. And the judges are the, are the rulers that served in that period of time. And, and as they served, here's what you're going to find. Some of them served well. None of them finished well. Not a one. You know why that's important? Because they're not the point of the story. When we get to Gideon, for example, our lives are not meant to be like, oh, live like Gideon. We look at the story of his defeat, right? And we we say like, wow, that's amazing. Like, I want to be like Gideon. He didn't finish well. Gideon's not the point of the story. The theme of redemption that runs through the entirety of Scripture is meant to point us to the one and only one who did finish well, perfectly. Jesus, he's the point of the story. It's what it's all about. But what we're going to discover as we walk through this book is the Israelites have this progression of sin and disobedience. And you know what? It's no different than what you or I experience. So different time, different culture, but those same struggles reside in every single one of us. We're going to either look to this world and all of its attractions and all the thing that tantalizes us to satisfy ourselves, or we're going to look to God. We're going to look to one of the two places. But if we boil it down to one key phrase that's going to summarize the first chapter, it's this. That sin becomes a progressive snare through willful neglect and purposeful disobedience. It snares us through willful neglect and purposeful 
disobedience. So progressive in the sense that it, it builds in, on, on one another, it leads to the next thing. So you're going to see that even in the points today as we look at, at Israel. It builds on one another. But then this snare, it's something that's just not obvious to us, that we don't see. Um, all of a sudden, it kind of catches us. And it feels like, man, I, I'll, I can't get away from that, right? It comes, seems to come out of nowhere. Is that Hunger Games playing behind me? I can tell that when you all look away from me into the screen. Can I be honest? I, I found a gift. I didn't know that was even the Hunger Games or whatever that was. Like somebody else had to say, oh yeah, that's what that is. But it illustrates perfectly what this looks like. Progression of sin, we're running along and sometimes it feels like a snare that just kind of catches us up and we can't escape from it. Now, that idea is actually um, right out of the text. It comes out of chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So I want to turn your attention over to chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse uh, number 1. The word of God says this, now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and he said, I have brought you from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Remember that phrase? We're going to come back to it at the end. He also told Israel this, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, their altars of worship. Another, another phrase you're going to want to remember. But he says this, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I will say, I will not drive them out before you, talking about the Canaanites, as they shall become thorns in your side and their gods shall be a snare to you. So the Lord says, Interestingly, that the gods of the Canaanites are going to become a snare to the Israelites, right? Catch, something that kind of catches them up. So understand what's happening. Beginning in chapter 1, God has told, remember, the, the Israelites, after the death of Joshua, he was going to use the tribe of Judah to continue to lead them to drive out the Canaanites. That's what's going on here. For the most part, it goes pretty well. All the way through verse 19, of chapter 1, but then some disobedience begins to, to flare up. Through, first, as you're going to see, kind of through willful neglect, but then ultimately through purposeful disobedience. Now, I've got to share something with you, is that the gods of the Canaanites aren't real. Like, they don't, they don't possess any power. But why did they exist? See, the Canaanites had created these gods that endorsed what their hearts already had desired. That's what they were that's what they were looking and hoping to do. And what God is doing here is he's showing the Israelites that their cycle of disobedience is first a worship issue. That's why, as I just read, God said in verse number two to break down their altars. He's saying ultimately, and he's going to make this connection, that disobedience is related to worship. Interestingly, as we, as we think about that, there is a criticism uh, in Christianity that we have a God that demands to be worshipped. So the, the question that often gets asked is this. What kind of God demands worship? And here's what I want you to know. God's desire for worship is not some form of narcissistic, egotistical self-fulfillment. His demand for worship is the Lord knowing that whatever it is that we look to, 
for our deepest desires, for our greatest joy, that is going to be the thing that determines what we do. So when we look to what we call small g gods to provide what only the Lord offers, we'll exchange, on one hand, a greater joy for a lesser joy. We'll exchange the fulfillment of our deepest desire for desires that always are going to take us to a place of disaster. So know this, God's desire for you to worship him is actually his protection for you from the snares of our own sin and the consequences. Because it always delivers consequences. Paul Tripp, pastor and counselor, puts it this way. Sin is a worship issue before it's a behavior issue. Sin is a worship issue. Before it's a behavior issue. So some of us are thinking, I don't know what you're talking about, Aaron. Like, I, I don't serve any gods. Or maybe you're thinking, like, I can't actually relate to that because that's not what it looks like for me. And I just want you to consider what it is that the Canaanites actually worshipped. Some of the things that they had created gods to worship themselves. Sex, power, possessions, status, youth, beauty, fertility. They had gods for for healing, they had gods for justice. You know, the Canaanites created over 53 different gods to serve their every single desire. And let me tell you something, God's heart for you is far too great. His love for you is far too deep as a follower of Christ to allow you to worship something that he knows is actually going to bring harm to you. That's why sin is a worship issue. But the snare that would become kind of this progressive cycle for the Israelites and ultimately for all of us throughout all time is a question on who do you worship? What's also interesting as we're going to see in this text is that we can identify the progressive patterns in the hearts of the Israelites because what was true for them is just as true for us. Listen to me, don't allow yourself that self-righteous posture that says, I won't come to these subtle snares of self-worship. Don't walk into that posture where I'm immune from this. But remember the good news. The redemption that God was at work doing in the book of Judges has already been fully realized for you in Jesus Christ. It's already done. It's already finished. But here we are. As God's people who live between the already and the not yet. Redeemed, but not sinless. This mixed desire in our hearts to worship God in ourselves that, that keeps leading us to these cycles of sin. And I want to tell you something. For our good, God is wrenching out of us. He's wrenching out of us. Self-worship that leads to sin that snares your soul, that takes you to places you have no desire to go. So if we're going to bring this text to bear in our lives, it means asking ourselves a few questions. Where are these snares true of my life? And then I want you to see through the text how they build on one another. And then we're going to end this way. Believing what Jesus has already accomplished on your behalf. See, the distinct snares that we're going to see in this text are the repeating themes of the entire book of judges. So what I'm going to share with you this morning is what you're going to see in chapter after chapter after chapter. So let's spend a little bit of time unpacking what was true for Israel that we can apply because it's also true for us. Let me share with you this first thing. The progressive snare of sin 
first in our lives, is going to come through complacency. So go back to chapter 1, verse 19. I want to read this for you. The word says this, and the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. The chariots of iron. So complacency says this, obedience, it's too hard. Too hard. Can't do that. So what happens is the tribe of Judah took possession of the hill country, but you know what they couldn't do? They couldn't drive out the people who lived in this geographical plain because they had chariots of iron. Now, as you read in the text, you have to come to a natural question that says, what difference does that make? Like, why would it matter that they had chariots of iron? Like, if the Lord was with them, if the Lord had already given them the land, if he had already secured the victory, then why was it that all of a sudden, in this moment, they came to this place where the iron chariots stopped them? The answer to that lies in understanding that they just decided that it was too hard to go where God called and too hard to do what God had commanded. That, in a nutshell, is complacency. That place where we've all been, Aaron included, that we believe a lie, that the power and promises of God were sufficient for what he's already done, but they're insufficient for what's before us. It's the belief that we might, we might lose something more than what it is we might gain. Israel already possessed some of the land. The iron chariots are before them. If we go into the place that God has called us, well, gosh, we might not only lose a lot of men in that, but we might also lose what we already have. And so it's just too hard. Just want to move forward. Can I ask you a question this morning that I asked of myself even this week? What are the iron chariots in your life? What are the iron chariots that are in your life? Those areas that you know you're disobedient, but if you're honest, you're like, eh, it's too hard. It's too hard. I'll give you some possible illustrations of this. Perhaps you're in a dating relationship with a person who's not a Christ follower. You're like, I, but I don't want to be alone. Or it's in that other person that you found identity and purpose. Rather than in Jesus Christ, we find our identity in another person. Or maybe for some of us this morning, what we just have is unresolved conflict in a relationship. And you know why that's an iron cherry? Because it would require humility and transparency on our part. One of the things that I had shared even with the, the first services, man, and especially in ministry, I've had, I've had deep hurts at different times. Relationships that have not been reconciled. And it is easy for me to say, man, I don't want to have anything to do with that person ever again. Yet, here we have God calling us and commanding us to reconcile relationships. Now listen, I'm not saying that, that, that God is calling us to go on vacation with that person again. But he is calling us to reconcile so much as it is possible for us. Maybe some of you this morning are walking through marriage struggles and what you are facing would require forgiveness. And you know what? That feels impossible. And you know why? Because the hurts are so deep that you can't possibly imagine actually getting over your anger and walking into a place of forgiveness. You're like, it's too hard. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. 
for some of us, the adultery or the addiction or the anger that has captured you, it's way too tantalizing just to release. And let's shift it this way, because for some of us, and, and I know that I have been at this place, for some of us, we've experienced deep loss, deep loss. We have great amounts of grief, and it has overwhelmed your soul. And you're in this place this morning, you're like, I don't know if I can ever get over this. But what it's done is it's led, it's, it's led it you to a place just of, of self-pity. You, I'm not going to confess that because don't you understand what's been done to me or how this has impacted my life? And listen, I could go on and on and on. I have no idea all of the things that the Spirit is bringing to your mind. But here's what I know. The power and promises of God that saved you, delivered you in the past, are going to deliver you again because they're already yours in Christ Jesus. Already yours. See, the question is not this. Does God possess the power? The question is not, is God good? Those things are true because of the unchanging nature and character of God. It's already established No, the question is, do you have the desire to even be well? Just a desire that says, where I'm at right now is not the place that I want to be. I'm telling you, because I've I've been there and I, I have angst for all of us who might be in this place this morning. Some of us are just too okay being okay. It would it would kind of be like this. My son Andrew three years ago in October, had an underlying medical condition that we did not know about. By the way, he's run, running slides today, and he gave me permission to share this in veto power as, a dad, or as, a, as my son. So um, don't be embarrassed for him. He had an underlying medical condition that ultimately uh, basically severed his, his, his hip and put him in a wheelchair, se- severed the bone. And there's only a couple of ways, well, there's only really one way to, two ways to fix it. Hip replacement or they have to do this surgery where they pin it and then they have to go in and they actually have to cut the femur in half. Now, I don't know about you, but just the thought of having your femur cut in half sounds extraordinarily excruciating, right? And it is. But we were promised that on the other side of that, he'd be well. Praise God. Has the first surgery. They put that in his leg, by the way. That's how you fix that. They put that in his leg. And you know what happened? Nothing. It it didn't heal. The bone didn't come back together. Matter of fact, there was almost more pain the second time around than there was the first time around, and right back to the wheelchair he goes. So what happens to him is that we have to do it again. And here's what you may not know. I've been... I've been privileged to be on staff and, and, and with Johnny again, one of my greatest friends in this staff for a year and four months. But when I flew up here to get introduced to this church, Jen, my wife, was supposed to be with me, but she wasn't because I left the, the Galisano Children's Hospital in Fort Myers, Florida to drive to the airport to fly to Greensboro to meet all of you, to be loved on as you have so graciously for over a year, only to finish this service, get back on an airplane and fly back because he was having the second surgery. Now, here's what I know about that surgery. I was with him those entire days in the hospital room. We already knew the pain that was coming. We already knew how excruciating it was going to be. And it would have been foolish for Andrew, and it would have been foolish for us as parents to say, well, you know what? Let's just, let's just stay in the wheelchair for the rest of your life, right? 
See, complacency would look like this. It says, I'm okay for my son to be in the wheelchair when I have a choice to walk, even though it's going to be really, really hard. That's what complacency looks like. Apply that to the, to the areas of your own disobedience. But here's the issue. Complacency, it doesn't usually stay there. Now, complacency actually starts to progress. Remember I said that it builds upon one another? Because the second place we're going to go, the second place that you're going to see in this text, is that complacency ultimately leads to a progressive snare of sin that now comes through compromise. Comes through compromise. So if complacency says obedience is too hard, compromise says this. Disobedience ain't too bad. That's not, it's, it's, it's not that bad. Just a little bit of compromise. So I don't have time to read them this morning, but you're going to see on the screen there are eight verses in chapter one that say the exact same thing, and it's this phrase, did not drive out. Man, if you're a, if you're a Bible circler or highlighter on your phone, I would encourage you, like, go through there and, write, and, and just highlight, did not drive out, did not drive out. Because when you see that in Scripture, when you see something that repeats like that, it should cause us to ask a question. What's, why? Like, what's significant that every tribe mentioned fails to do the exact same thing? What's going on? And here's the reason. It's because it implies choice. One that they couldn't, it's just they, they didn't want to. That's really what compromise looks like. I could do that. I could step into that obedience. I just... I don't want to. It's knowing what God says and deciding this, that our obedience just isn't too bad. So the Israelites, interestingly, are going to find themselves in that place. You know how they got there? Same way we do. Because compromise begins when we ask ourselves this question. And I wonder how many times we've asked it in our own hearts. Did God really say? Eh, right? Mm. Did God really say that? Uh, well, I'm sure I can find a way to circumnavigate that. I'm not sure God really said it that way. It's interesting because it's the question that Satan asked in the garden. In the temptation that basically, that, that, that completely leads to the fall of humanity into sin, it started with this one question. Did God really say and it's the same question we ask ourselves every single time we contemplate compromising. So here's what it looks like. It happens when we take God's word and we start to question if what it says is what it means. There was a sad study that just came out among evangelicals. Like upwards of 40% would say, I'm not sure if I can believe at all, that Jesus was God or that the Bible is inerrant and infallible in the original languages. I don't, know the, like, I don't know if I believe that. And here's the problem with that. When we start to look at that and say, well, I'm not sure because I have doubts that what God says is what he really means, then, then what we have done is we've stripped away the foundational undergirding that allows us to make any decision that we want to make. So we, we shouldn't be surprised in any way when, when, when culture like literally goes crazy 
But when the people of God do it, it's always, and I can always take you this to anybody who's in life, it's always when we undermine the authority of Scripture. Always. It's when we say, yeah, I don't, I don't know that that's something I want to press into right now. I don't know if that's what it means. And here's why. Because we believe a lie that says, I know my life better than I believe that God knows my life. Believing that my best and what I want and what I desire in the moment is a whole lot more than God's best for me. Even though, as we've already shared with you, the reason that God calls us to worship him is because he understands that's the place of our greatest protection. Now how we get there? We have conversations with ourselves. It's been said often, it's true. No one preaches to you more than you. No one preaches to you more than you. No one has more conversations with you than you do in your head. And, and in the middle of that, we start to ask ourselves some, some questions. Questions that are framed like this. Well, I don't know. I th- times have changed. That was a different culture. Like, man, maybe we can't apply everything there. Or we don't understand Old Testament and the theme of redemption in light of the new. So we we try to reconcile things that we don't understand. Or we say statements like, love is love. Not understanding that God, the creator of love, also gets to define it. Or I hear this one a whole lot in my office. You just don't understand. Um, Probably I do. (laughs) Let me ask you a question that might just pierce your soul for a minute. Where are you compromising with God's word right now? Like, is there an issue at work that means you must right in this moment compromise your integrity? Or how about just cohabitating relationships because you need to determine compatibility or convenience? Say, I've never understood why that's wrong. Then you don't have a godly understanding of why God created, ordained, and, and calls us into marriage. It's, it's, a, it's a theological issue. Maybe we're just in this moment looking to something or someone else for intimacy because, you know, you're like, my marriage just has not delivered for me what I thought it was going to do. And I thought it was going to be so much more than this. Maybe for some, as we talked a little bit, it's just refusing to forgive and reconcile a relationship because how you, were, how you were retreated at some point in your life. I'm not going to do that. Some of us just choose to not live with financial generosity. You know why? Because the sacrifice is too great. Oh, somebody else can do that. I don't need to live as though God called me in financial generosity or whatever it else is because I could go on and on, couldn't I? The list is long. So whatever it is that the Spirit is bringing to your uh, heart and mind right now, regardless of whether or not I mentioned it, maybe an area in which he is just exposing the areas of our compromise. And when we are compromising, what we are saying is that we, are, we can bargain with sin because we believe that we can bargain with God. So I spent 17 years uh, in ministry basically in South Florida, which makes it really easy to take cruises because I don't have to fly there, right? Just drive over to the cruise terminal, get on, love those things. What happens every time you get off, if you've ever been on a cruise ship, what happens every time that you get off a cruise ship? There's always a marketplace set up, right? And you can go in and, and you, can get, you can get trinkets sold by a Jamaican guy made in China. 
And you always are allowed to bargain. Matter of fact, one of the, the greatest um, ways that this played out, one time, <clears throat> Jen and I, th- I, I think we were, I don't know, we were somewhere in the Caribbean. And we were alone with this, this guy paddling down this, this river. Uh, I think it was Jamaica, but don't hold me to that. And so this guy pulls out like this fruit or co- coconut. I, I don't even know what it was. It was weird. And he starts to carve the outside of it. As we go all the way down, he's carving and he's showing us all the work that he does. I mean, it was the ultimate in cell jobs, right? Because what, what happens is you get to the end of the little raft thing and he wants you to buy that. And now you've had to watch this guy for two hours, like spend his, 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 his life carving you this thing. And, and he's hoping you go, yeah, that's nice. No, thank you. No, I, I ponied up the 50 bucks for it. We bargain with those kinds of things because we ultimately, we think what we're going to get is something pretty spectacular. And then we get back to the ship and it's always a cheap trinket that actually doesn't deliver what we hoped it would. See, bargaining is just that. It makes you think you got a deal when you just got gypped. And that's what it looks like when we compromise in sin. Because in that moment, when we're bargaining with God, we're pretty convinced that what it's going to deliver for us is a real bargain. And at end, you always get gypped. Not only that, though, the progressive snare of sin comes through compromise. And compromise will take root. It always leads to this last and same place. Always. That's because the progressive snare of sin then turns into conformity. And conformity says this. Obedience Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Once it was too hard, now it isn't too bad, now it just doesn't matter. You know why we say that? Because we haven't experienced the consequences of our sin. So the way that that's played out with the Israelites is found in at least four verses. Again, no time to read it, but I would encourage you to go back and look at this four times. In those four verses that are on the screen, it says this statement, they lived with the people. I mean, the Israelites lived among the Canaanites. So don't misunderstand what's happening here. The Israelites began to live in conformity to the Canaanite culture. They took on the worship practices and they mixed it with their own. So everything that you read about the Old Testament with, they, they came out of Canaanite culture. Uh, the, you know, the, the prophets of Baal and the Asherah poles that they worship, all this kind of stuff. Ultimately, all of that was because Israel just compromised. And then they conformed to the culture that was around them. Every enticement of the Canaanites became theirs. All of those gods that they made up to worship were too enticing for the Israelites. That's because conformity is just a natural place that complacency and compromise lead us to. It's just a, it's just a danger in the subtle way that that happens. I'm gonna guess this. When we look at our lives and we say, oh, I'm conformed to the culture, no one jumps into the pool of conforming. And we don't jump into the deep end. It kind of looks more like a, just a slow wade all the way down till we find ourselves just at a place where we're conformed. Now, if you consider the Israelites, here's what you need to know. Nothing goes sideways at first. Like, it's not bad. Nothing, nothing bad happens. Matter of fact, things actually go pretty well. They're doing their things. The Canaanites are doing theirs. Like, oh, I don't think it's a big deal. But conformity underneath it also has a lie, and it goes like this. If I'm not experiencing the consequences, then maybe what I'm doing is not wrong. Maybe it's the word of God that's wrong. We rationalize things that shouldn't be rationalized. And see, our, 
our thinking lures us to a place where we have mistaken, listen to me, God's mercy for his permission. We think that because we haven't experienced the consequences of the moment, that's God's permission, rather than seeing it for what it is, which is God's mercy. Compromise your integrity at work, you got a promotion. Cohabitation turns to marriage. Unreconciled relationships, those fade. New ones form. But here's what's staggering. Conforming and following Christ never go hand in hand. Never. Listen to the words of Jesus. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Those are strong words. What he's saying there is it's a worship issue. You're either going to, you're going to hate one thing or you're going to be devoted to one thing. But you, you can't have equal love for both things. And when we have, we have become complacent to the place we compromise, to the place that we conform to the culture, here's what I know. We're never going to come to a place where those things can, can walk together in perfect tandem and harmony. Because you're going to hate one and you're going to be devoted to the other. Always works that way. Not my words, it's the words of God. So before we can begin as a people just to look around and blame the culture at large, which, let's be honest, it's crazy. Like, I can't even hardly watch the news. It's just nuts. But here's what I know. Looking at a world that exists outside of us and expecting people who do not follow Christ to act like Christians is absurdity. So let me talk about us, those who have claimed Jesus Christ as our Savior. Because the ways that Christians conform is because we're a complacent, compromising people. Now, I just got done spending 30 minutes telling you some very hard things. Yeah, you should have studied it this week. You should have seen what I didn't say. But I want you to know one thing. Because if in this moment you're like, gosh, that guy piled on more guilt today than I, you know, I want for the next six months. Let me tell you one thing. Obedience is not motivated out of guilt. It's motivated out of love. See, that is the beauty of the gospel. When you think about Jesus, when you think about the good news, he never stops pursuing he never stops disciplining. Oh, there's going to be consequences. But he never stops loving you. Like that's a part of his grace. And we get a glimpse of that grace in this text. Look back with me at one more place. Back to chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to read it again, even though I've read it already. It says this. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. And he said, I brought you from Egypt. And I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. God's faithful promise. I will never, circle this, break my covenant with you. The word covenant, kind of like a promise, only stronger. One-way love. God establishes his promises with us because of his character and nature, and he never breaks them because of who he is. So yes, God's people are broken and unfaithful, but God is perfect and God is faithful. And the one-way nature of God's love is demonstrated in the covenant that he makes. It's the covenant that he alone keeps. And when we look at this text and we look at the covenant, it's just a foreshadow of the covenant that was coming. The foreshadow of that covenant that Jesus would make on the night before he was crucified. That says this, 
what I'm going to do has secured for you as a believer an eternal life and a life that, that nothing you do can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You know why that's good news? Because we deserve the opposite. We deserve the punishment for our sin. But here's the reality. When God saved us, it's not as though we did anything to get there. God looked at you. He set his affections on you. He said, I love you. He called you to be his own. And because you didn't do anything to become a follower of Christ, he alone is the one that's going to keep it. Period. So what we do in the midst of that is rest. We rest. I'm not saying that we don't work through these things, but work in obedience motivated of love, rest in what Christ has already done. The discipline and restoration, even in our disobedience, that is the unrelenting, unchanging, never-ending love of God. Listen to me. If you're this morning sitting here and you're struggling because God has convicted you and you are in a place of despair, I want you to know something. Jesus is not going to reject you. Christian who's walking a different path, he'll always call you back to himself because we are his redeemed. He doesn't cast us off. So a lot of times what we need as Christians is actually just a reminder of how sweet and how precious that really good is news, that good news is to a soul that perhaps finds themselves, even this morning, weary and complacent and compromising and conforming. Is that where you're at this morning? You at a place where you're just exhausted? Where your sin has seemed to have led you to places that you didn't think it would take you. It ain't pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and just do better, try harder Christianity that's going to get you there. It's not. It's motivated by what love has already accomplished on your behalf. So here's how we're going to close this last point. I'm going to read you a story. Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace. And if, if you find yourself in one of these places this morning, this story's for you. Or if you're a Christian this morning who, actually, truth be told, things are going, going pretty well, but you know how life goes and you know the struggles that are going to come, this story is for you. And if you're in this morning and you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, well, then this story is for you because this is what it looks like for God to welcome us home. As I read... You listen. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times and she sees inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night... She acts on a plan that she has mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She's visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because newspapers in Travis City report in lurid detail the gangs and the drugs and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that that is probably the last place her parents will look for her. 
California, maybe. Florida, but not Detroit. On her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay, and he gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. And since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture painted on the back of a milk carton with a headline that says, Have you seen this child? But by now she has blonde hair, and with all the makeup and body piercing and jewelry she wears, no one would even mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways, and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first shallow signs of illness appear. And it, amazing, it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days, we can't mess around, he growls. Before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She turns a couple of tricks at night, but they don't pay much. And all the money goes to support her drug habit anyway. The winter blows in and she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside a big department store. Well, sleeping's the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. And then dark bands circle her eyes and her cough worsens. One night as she lies awake, listening for footsteps, all of a sudden everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl. Lost in a cold in frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry and she needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper she's piled atop her coat. Something jolts a synapse of memory and a single image fills her mind of May in Traverse City. When a merry million cherry blossoms bloom at once and her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossoming trees in chase of that tennis ball. God, why did I leave? She says to herself, and pain stabs her heart. Because my dog eats better back at home than I do. She's sobbing. She knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls. Three straight connections with the answer machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times. But the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm going to catch a bus up your way, and I'll get there around midnight tomorrow. If, if you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus till it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for the bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes all the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town, misses, and, she, and they miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could at least have talked to them? And besides, even if they're home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts, they bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech that she's been preparing for her father. Daddy, I'm sorry. I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Daddy, can you, can you forgive me? She says her words over and over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. 
She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the road and the asphalt steams. And she's forgotten how dark it gets out here at night. A deer darts across the road and the bus swerves and every so often a billboard, a sign posting the mileage to Traverse City. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks. That's all we have. She thinks 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in the compact mirror. She smooths her hair. She licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonder if her parents will notice or if they're even there. She walks to the terminal not knowing what to expect and not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees because there in the concrete walls and plastic chairs of the bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan stands a group of 40 family mothers. Brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and grandmothers and a great grandmother to boot. And they're all wearing ridiculous-looking party hats and blowing noisemakers. And then taped across the entire wall of the terminal is one of those computer-generated banners that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers, her dad breaks, and she looks through the tears of the memorized speech, Daddy! Daddy, I'm sorry! I know! But he interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party because a banquet's waiting for you at home. That, my friends, is who Jesus is, even in the middle of your complacent, compromising, conforming, sinful life. He's always ready and willing to welcome you home. Where are you at? Run to him, because the good news has already secured it for you. And you know what our response is? Our response is to worship him because it's the only thing we can do. Father, thank you for your unrelenting love and your pursuit of us. God, that you are faithful, that you never let us go, that you never leave us, you never forsake us. God, even when we get ourselves into a mess, there you are, welcoming us with open arms bringing us back, wrapping your arms around us, and even giving us a party. Father, we don't deserve it, but then your goodness is so great that we can't hardly fathom it some days. Thank you for who you are and what you've done in the gospel. It's in your name we pray. Amen.